to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 13, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. The friends of Job came to comfort him, and Their assumption, their basic assumption was that Job was a sinner, had done something horrible, done it secretly, but now God is punishing him because no man can suffer the things that Job has suffered except it be punishment from God. Now, the book of Job should once and for all settle that issue. Fortunately, in the case of Job, God gives us an insight to the spiritual background of the whole situation so that we recognize that it isn't a judgment of God against Job that has created the problems and the suffering that he is going through. Now, with the people who came to Jesus, and it would seem that there were certain Galileans who came down to the feast in Jerusalem, and the Galileans were known as Uh, hotheads, uh, revolutionaries, and uh, perhaps they had started some kind of a insurrection against Rome there at the feast, and so Pilate had them slain, and their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifices that they were offering. But Jesus said, because of this, do you think that they were greater sinners than the rest of the Galileans? And he said, I tell you, no. This wasn't as uh, because they were sinners. But except you repent, Jesus said, you will likewise perish. And then because the, the Judeans, those who lived in Judah, those who lived in Jerusalem, looked at those in Galilee, they sort of looked down upon them. Uh, they would called them the Galilee of the Gentiles, and uh, they sort of looked down on the Galileans as less spiritual. And thus they bring up to Jesus the Galileans, but Jesus brings up a tragedy that took place in Jerusalem. Now, at the lower end of the city of Jerusalem was the pool of Siloam. And the pool was fed by waters from the spring of Gihon through a tunnel that Hezekiah had uh, dug through the rock in order to bring the water into the city. Now, evidently, and we don't know anything historically about this, but evidently there was a tower there at the pool of Siloam that collapsed And when it did, 18 people were killed 
as the tower collapsed. And so Jesus makes mention of that. Those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were sinners above all of those that dwelled in Jerusalem? Were they the worst sinners? Was this judgment of God singled upon them because they were the worst sinners? No, Jesus said. And except you repent, you will likewise perish. And then he spoke a parable. And he said there was a certain man that had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. So he said to the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I've found none. Cut it down. Why encumbereth it the ground? And the dresser, the gardener, answered and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it or cultivate around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. The plea for one more chance, one more opportunity for it to bear fruit. Surely God is gracious and he gives us chance after chance to bear fruit to be fruitful for him. The interesting thing in this parable, of course, the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel, as is the vineyard. And we do know that there are other instances where the fig tree was used to symbolize the nation of Israel, and it's not bearing fruit is a symbol of the fact that the nation of Israel was not bringing forth the fruit that God desired. You remember when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, he saw a fig tree and he went over it to pick some fruit, and seeing that it had leaves but no fruit, he cursed it, and immediately it withered and died, and the disciples were amazed that it so quickly withered. But again, it was a symbol of the nation of Israel that had failed to bring forth the fruit that God was desiring. Now, Jesus tells us that God desires fruit from our lives. Jesus said, I am the vine, my father is the husbandman. And every branch in me that bringeth forth fruit, he purges it that it might bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, let my word abide in you, that you might bring forth much fruit. Herein is your Father glorified. God desires fruit from our lives. Now the fig tree had leaves, but no fruit. It looked good, but it didn't bear fruit. Some of you may look good, but God wants your life to bring forth fruit. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And someone has said that God loves to walk in his garden and in just enjoy the fruit, which is love. He just wants your love, wants you to love him and wants you to receive his love, wants this loving relationship with you. And so the final opportunity, give it one more chance. 
Let me have one more year. And the inner one interceding for the tree. And as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years and was bowed together and in no wise could lift herself up. Her body bent at the waist, and so her sort of folded over, and a person at this uh, position, their head is up, but it's very weird to look at because their body is sort of folded in the middle, their head down near their feet, but turned back as, as they walk, bent over. And uh, there are some cases like this, even in uh, the Orient today, the Middle East, where people's bodies are sort of bent double and uh, they, they sort of hold their head up uh, to uh, see a tragic condition. And here it is uh, ascribed to a demonic spirit, a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him. And he said unto her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And then he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Eighteen years in this bent-over condition. Misery. And then with the touch of Jesus, able to stand up straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, now Jesus was teaching, we are told, in the synagogue, it was the Sabbath day. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. He was angry. But it's interesting that he didn't express his anger toward Jesus, but he expressed it towards the people. And he said to them, there are six days in which men ought to work and in them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So you have six days to come and be healed. Six days that you can work. And they looked at healing as a work and thus the violation of the Sabbath day injunction that you're not to do any work on the Sabbath day. But the Lord then answered him and said, You hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his donkey from the uh, stall and lead him away to watering? Do, do you water your donkey and your ox? Do you lead him over to the watering trough on the Sabbath day? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, the adversaries were ashamed, and all of the people rejoiced 
for the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus was constantly in trouble with the Pharisees and those who taught the law because he violated their interpretation of the law. But it's quite obvious that their interpretation of the law was wrong. They interpreted the law totally in an outward way. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, as Jesus taught concerning the law, he gave several illustrations how they were teaching the law and how it was in conflict with what God intended the law to be. Paul said the law is good if you use it lawfully. But their law was not intended to make a person righteous. Keeping the law will not make you righteous. Paul, in writing to the Romans, said, what shall we say? That the Gentiles have attained the righteousness through faith. But the Jews, attempting by the works of the law to be righteous, have not attained it. So by the works of the law, by keeping the law, does not make you righteous before God. In fact, that is not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to make you guilty before God. It was to cause you to come to God for His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. It wasn't to make you feel righteous like, you know, I don't need God's help. You remember the two that came and prayed, the Pharisee who said, Father, I thank you, I'm not as other men. I pay my tithes, I've never committed adultery. And he goes on to list the works of the law. Where the other one being uh, a publican just beat on his breast and said, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, the second one went away justified. Why? Because he cast himself on the mercy of God. And the law is intended to make the whole world guilty before God. Because the law, in its original intent, was dealing with the attitudes that are in the heart more than the actions of the individual. So as Jesus was giving the contrast between the law as it was being taught by the Pharisees and as it was intended by God, said, you have heard that it hath been said. The Pharisees are telling you this. Thou shalt not kill. And whoever kills will be in danger of the council. But I say unto you, that if you hate your brother without a cause, you're in danger of the council. And if you say to your brother, Raka, you vain fellow, you're in danger of judgment. And if you say, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. The attitude of disrespect for your brother, you vain, empty fellow, or you fool, or that hatred, that is the thing that breeds murder. So that Jesus is saying that you can violate the law without ever clubbing your neighbor or your brother just by hating him in your heart. You've heard that it hath been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, 
If you look at a woman lustfully, desiring her in your heart, you've committed adultery already. It's, it's something that's gone on in your mind and in your heart. And thus, you're guilty. But you see, if you have never given in to those impulses, if you just go around lusting but never giving in to it, you feel very righteous. Well, I've never committed adultery. I've never committed fornication. But in your heart, in your mind, you have. And thus, the law was intended to make you guilty to say, oh God, I have impure thoughts. God, I am an unclean man. Help me, God. And you cast yourself on the mercy of God. And in so doing, you attain to the righteousness by God's imputing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you by your faith in him. So here we have the case of the um, violation of the law according to their interpretation. Sabbath day, Jesus healed this woman. But he justifies the action. It's interesting that he speaks about the ox and the donkey here, um, being loosed by them on the Sabbath day to go over to the watering trough. And so this woman being loosed from Satan's power. In the next chapter, uh, again, we find that uh, it was the Sabbath day and he had gone to the house of a Pharisee uh, to eat bread with him. And there was a certain man which had the dropsy, and Jesus asked the lawyers, first of all, and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they didn't answer him. And so he took the man, and he healed him, and let him go. And then he said to them, which of you, having a donkey or an ox that falls in the pit on the Sabbath day, won't pull him out of the pit on the Sabbath day. In other words, you show mercy to your animals, should we not show mercy to man? We'll get to that next week. Verse 18. Then said Jesus, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed into a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, we have a series of kingdom parables. And in these, this series of kingdom parables... Jesus shows that the kingdom of God is going to attract a lot of people and will even bring or allow evil to come within its midst. You remember Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man who sowed wheat in his field. But then an enemy came and sowed tares in the field. And so when they saw the tares growing up, they said, Lord, shall we go out and pull out the tares? And he said, no, let them grow together. 
And when harvest comes, then go in and first of all, root out the tares and then gather the wheat. So they were allowed to grow together the good with the evil. Now, first of all, mustard does not grow into a tree. The mustard is a plant. And it doesn't grow into a tree. So growing into a tree, you have abnormal growth. And the birds of the air coming and launching, uh, or the, the birds of the air uh, coming uh, into the branches, lodging in the branches of the tree. Now, in the Bible, the birds are representative of evil. In biblical interpretation, they have what they call the law of expositional constancy. Big words. But, and isn't it interesting, theologians use such big words. And, uh, but what they are saying is, There is a constancy in the symbols that are used. So that if brass is a symbol of judgment, each time brass is mentioned uh, in a symbolic form, it's symbolic of judgment. Silver is symbolic of redemption. And thus, in this expositional constancy, if birds are interpreted in one parable as an evil force, then in all of the parables where birds are used, they are used in an evil sense, never in a good sense. And so we do have the parable that was explained by Jesus of how that the seed was sown and it fell on various types of soil. And some of the seed fell on the wayside and the birds of the air came and ate it before it had a chance to root. And so Jesus said, the birds are the enemy, Satan, who comes and plucks the word that it doesn't have a chance to bear fruit in a person's life. It doesn't have a chance to root and to grow. So birds in a symbolic sense are evil. What Jesus is then saying is that there will be an abnormal growth of the church, but it will also tolerate and there will be evil allowed in it. On the way to church tonight, I was listening to a news broadcast And there was a church in Los Angeles today that had AIDS Sunday. And uh, they were talking about how we as the church uh, need to reach out to those people with AIDS, and I agree with that. But one of the pastors was interviewed, and he said that we cannot adequately deal with the issue of AIDS until we learn to recognize the gift of sexuality, how that God has given us this gift, and it really doesn't matter how or who we exercise the gift with. 
Well, that's a bird. that lodges in the branches. And so they say, well, we are the church, you know. We have a reverend in front of our names. And there are a lot of people with reverends in front of their names that really deny the faith. And thus, we look at the church and we say, well, there's... 80% of the people in the United States, you know, say they're born again and all. Not so. Among those are a lot of birds that are just lodging in the branches but really do not belong to or are a part of the real body of Christ. So uh, throughout the world, You have the church. Much of it is really not the church of Jesus Christ. Much of it is just man's organization, man's system. Not bringing the truth of the gospel to the people. Much of it is just social reform. Much of it is just powerful organizational structure but not the real church of Jesus Christ. So, in the same token, again he said, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. So, again, leaven is always a symbol of evil. Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In the Old Testament, at the feast of the Passover, they were to offer unleavened bread. In fact, before the feast, they were to go through the house and rid the house of all of the leaven. Leaven was used in the bread as an agent for causing the bread to rise. How does it do it? By rotting. And as it rots, there are little air bubbles that form, and it puffs the bread up with the leaven, uh, which rots and, and forms these little air bubbles, and so it makes a lighter loaf of bread. And thus a rotten influence that has the tendency to permeate on through the whole, until the whole thing becomes leavened. Now, there is another interpretation of these two analogies or parables here, one which I reject but I will present it to you, and if you want, you can accept it. Uh, It is the way it is interpreted by the liberal theologians and by those who ascribe to the dominion theology. And that is that the mustard seed being a very small seed planted in the earth will ultimately grow into a great tree which 
will provide shelter for all. In other words, they look at that as the growth of the kingdom of God or the church. And they say that the church will ultimately bring its influence into all the world so that the church will establish the kingdom of God here on the earth. And the same with leaven, we have this gradual, slow influence throughout the world until we will ultimately bring the whole world to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and we will bring the kingdom of God to the earth uh, through uh, the efforts of the church. Well, if I believed that, I would be extremely disappointed and discouraged at this point. Because I do not see the church having this kind of gradual, slow, increasing influence until the whole world is influenced and permeated by the church of Jesus Christ, the influence of the church. I don't see it. I see a world that is being permeated more and more by evil rather than by good. And thus... um, I accept the first of the uh, interpretations of these two parables over the second. Now, as Jesus was going through the cities and the villages, remember he's journeying to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. He's on his way coming through Samaria and uh, the area of Galilee and Samaria, sort of just uh, meandering in a sense, Uh, on through the area as he is slowly making his way to Jerusalem, that he might be in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover where he will be offered as the Passover lamb, the sacrifice of God for man's sin. So he is journeying towards Jerusalem. And one asked him the question, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. For when once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. And then shall you begin to say, But we have eaten and drunk in thy presence. And you have taught us in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Jesus definitely taught that there were many people who thought they were saved who were not. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something very similar to this. As he told us that Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. But broad is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many that go in thereat. And then he tells us that in that day there will be many who will come saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. But he said, not all who say, Lord, Lord, are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father. And in that context, 
between the warning of the straight gate and the narrow way, he says there will be false prophets and beware of these false prophets. False prophets who will seek to broaden the way. False prophets who will declare that we've got to learn to respect this gift of human sexuality that God has given to us. And they will seek to broaden the way. They'll seek to make men feel comfortable in their sin. By the grace of God and by the help of God, I never want to make a person feel comfortable in sin, nor do I want to give anybody a false assurance of their salvation. I don't want to try to broaden the way. I (laughs) declare unto you the words of Jesus that straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be that go in. The Bible warns us over and over against the works of the flesh, living after the flesh, warning us that they which do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way. So strive, the word in the Greek is agonizomai, That is, agonize, strive. It's a struggle to enter in at the straight gate. For many will seek to enter in and shall not be able, Jesus said. So it isn't that I just kick back and say, well, it really doesn't matter. You know, I believe in Jesus and Everything is all right, you know. It doesn't matter that I do these things, you know, fornicate a little bit. and oh, It really doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter because Jesus, you know, I'm trusting in him. And, and think you're going to just cruise on in. Jesus said, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For when once the door is shut... And you are standing outside. Now, let me tell you something. When the door is shut, you don't want to be on the outside. When the door is shut, you want to be on the inside. Once the door is shut and you begin to stand on the outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. He will answer and say, I don't know from whence you are. Very much like not all who say, Lord, Lord, are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father. For I will say unto you, there will be many who come in that day saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. Have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils in thy name? Have we not done great works in thy name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Here they are saying, Lord, we have eaten And we have drunk in your presence. That is, we've taken Holy Communion. We've received the Holy Communion. And Lord, you have taught in our streets. We know your word. But James says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Jesus said, this is what I will like in a man who hears and doesn't do it. He's like a man who built a house upon the sand. And when the storm came, the house fell. Great was the fall thereof. That's the man who hears the word but doesn't do anything. 
doesn't live by it, isn't affected by it. You may be able to quote it. You may be able to give me the Hebrew and the Greek. But if you don't do it, if you don't live by it, if you don't follow it, you're only deceiving yourself. And here they're saying, but Lord, you taught in the streets. We know your word. And again, he says, depart from me. I don't know you. I don't know whence you are. And he calls them workers of iniquity. That is, they are living after the flesh and the things of the flesh, which are listed for us in Romans chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 6. And Jesus said, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. He's talking, of course, basically to the Jews at this point who were trusting in their works and they will be thrust out. But then he said they will come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. The Gentile nations will be brought in. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. In Romans chapter 9, verse 30, Paul speaks here of what shall we say then that the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have attained to righteousness even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. We, through faith in Jesus Christ, have attained a righteous standing before God. They are trying to, by their works, attain a righteous standing before God. It is interesting that God established the covenant with the nation of Israel. And in that covenant, there were the sacrifices that were to be offered for the sin offering. The bringing of an animal as a substitute. Since the destruction of the temple, there have been no sacrifices. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So that what they have done is substituted their works rather than a sacrifice. They are offering their works to God. And Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement, 
that day when the priest made the sacrifice for the sins of the nation and the goat was slain and its blood taken in and placed upon the mercy seat and a covering was made for their sins. Today, Yom Kippur is a day that is spent in meditation as they look over the past year, their good works and their evil things. And the whole idea is that my good works sort of overshadow my evil or are greater, sort of put them on the balance. Here's, you know, the crooked things I've done here, the good things I've done, and, and hopefully the balance is always with the uh, good things, I guess, outweighing the bad things. But because they've sought by their works to attain the righteousness, they haven't attained it. So they'll see the Gentiles there in the kingdom of God with Abraham and Isaac and the fathers while they themselves are thrust out. Now, when Jesus said these things, there were certain Pharisees said, you better get out of here because Herod's going to kill you. Herod, of course, had killed John the Baptist. And now they're trying to threaten Jesus. But Jesus knows, according to the scriptures, that, uh, or just Jesus knows according to the plan of God, that his death will be in Jerusalem. And Herod will not be the instrument. Herod's jurisdiction was in the Galilee region. Jerusalem was under the jurisdiction of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And so Jesus, knowing that his death was to be in Jerusalem, wasn't threatened by Herod. You better get out of here. Herod's going to kill you. He said, you go tell that fox. Uh, Jesus had nothing but disdain for Herod. Herod's action of killing John the Baptist in such a horrible way in response to the dance of Herodias, his wife's daughter, granting her her request of John's head. And it just, it's interesting. Jesus had nothing to say to him. It's really very tragic when Jesus has nothing to say to a person. Herod was curious about Jesus. He had heard about Jesus. He wanted to meet him. He wanted to see Jesus work some miracle. He, he was interested in phenomena, unexplainable phenomena. And when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, the time to be crucified, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate trying to sort of escape being the instrument of condemning him and putting him to death on the cross, he heard that Herod was in town, so he sent Jesus to Herod because Jesus was from Galilee, which was Herod's territory. And so when Jesus was brought to Herod, Herod was sort of excited because he wanted to see Jesus work some miracle, but Jesus had nothing to say to him. Probably just looked on him, piercing him with that gaze. And so Herod sent him back to Pilate. 
Jesus said, you go tell that fox that I have work to do today and tomorrow. I'm on my journey. I have cures. The third day I'll be perfected. Nevertheless, I'm going to walk today and tomorrow and the day following because it cannot be that a prophet would perish out of Jerusalem. And then, having said that, and the thought of Jerusalem, Jesus sort of cried out of his spirit, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and you stone those that are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, but you would not. Though the prophets who had been sent by God to warn the people have been slain, have been stoned, have been mistreated, have been placed in bonds and in prisons. Yet Jesus loved Jerusalem. And as he was going, he, he was just lamenting, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You kill the prophets, you stone those that God has said. But yet, how often my desire would be to just gather you together that you might know the comfort and the protection, the warmth of my love. But you would not. They exercised their will against his. How often I would have, but you would not. I wonder how many times Jesus looks upon us and more or less laments. How often I would have helped you. How often I would have strengthened you. How often I would have protected you. How often I long to just be close to you. But you would not. The failure is not on God's part. The failure is on our part. God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. His ear is not heavy that he cannot hear. But you are the one that won't respond. You're the one that won't come. But you would not. And thus, the final call of God, the final opportunity to Jerusalem is going to be given. Here's now the prophet that is going to come. The prophet that Moses prophesied concerning, and there shall rise a prophet like unto me, and to him you shall give heed. The very one of whom all of the prophets spoke, the one they said was going to come, the holy one, the just, he is coming now, and Jerusalem will have one final chance, and they're going to fail. He will be despised and rejected. And even as he came to Jerusalem, according to the prophecies, riding on the donkey, as he came in view of the city, he began to weep. Again, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If you'd only known the things that belong to your peace in this thy day, but they are hid from your eyes. And then he began to predict the invasion by the Roman troops the carnage in the streets, the little children who will be destroyed. 
And he wept when he saw the consequences of their rejection of God's innovation of love to them. And so, because you've rejected, your house is left to you desolate. This great temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left standing on another. And verily, he said, you're not going to see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish people were dispersed in 70 AD, those who survived. They were taken captive by Titus, many of them taken back to Rome to spend the rest of their lives as slaves. The nation of Israel ceased to exist as a nation. Their house was left desolate. As Moses predicted in Deuteronomy, they were scattered among the nations and they became a curse and a byword. They were hated. And to the present day, the Jews are still experiencing hatred from the world, bitter animosity from the world. Now, as Christians, we should never be guilty of anti-Semitism. That's a sin. They are God's people and God will judge them. It's not up to us to be condemning of them. It's up to us to be loving and to have pity, concern and care for the Jew and to pray for them. As a people, they have experienced horrible tragedies through the years. Unfortunately, much of the suffering that has been brought upon the Jews has been brought by the church or, again, that big mustard tree and the birds that were in it. And it was the church that killed so many in the bloody Inquisition. And the Jews looked upon Hitler as a Christian, one of the birds in the branches of the mustard tree. And thus they blamed the Christians for the Holocaust. No wonder it is so difficult for us to reach the Jew because of so much that has been done to them by the so-called church of Jesus Christ. But what they have experienced in the past is nothing to be compared with what they're going to experience in the future. And they're not going to see Jesus again until they pray, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They'll come to the place of desperation under the reign of the Antichrist and the persecution that will be bought, brought by the Antichrist, they will be brought ultimately to the place where they'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then shall the Lord of glory appear and they shall see him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son.
So, Jerusalem failed in the final opportunity that God gave to it, the last call. And as a result, the desolation until that day comes when they will say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and the House of the Pharisee. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 13 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you again for your Word a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. May we walk in its light. Lord, help us that we might indeed strive to enter in at the straight gate. May we examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. May we prove, Lord. May we make our calling and election sure. For in that day, Lord, we surely do not want to be on the outside knocking at the door, but we want to be inside, Lord, in the enclosure of your love, in your kingdom. Help us, Lord. Guide us, Lord, into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Undoubtedly, one of the most glaring signs that our society is in trouble is the breakdown of the family unit. Marriages just aren't making it today, and kids are suffering as they watch the breakup of their homes. Those marriages still holding together are often plagued by conflict and turmoil, making the home a battleground instead of a refuge. That's why The Word for Today would like to present Pastor Chuck Smith's Marriage and Family MP3, where Pastor Chuck discusses basic biblical principles to keep a family's love alive. Each member of the family has a different set of needs and responsibilities. And when you know and apply God's principles, everyone in the family can experience real peace, real joy, and an agape love. 
To order your copy of the Marriage and Family MP3 by Chuck Smith, call The Word for Today at 800-272-WORD or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.